You're listening to It's Politics Stupid. In this episode, we talk about some governor's takes on the Syrian refugee crisis, the education system fails us once again, and our guest this week is the coolest professor-slash-CIA executive that we know. And also, the only one that we know. Hi everyone, welcome to It's Politics Stupid, the news, politics, and culture podcast created for millennials by millennials. We break down the important stuff and explain the who's, what's, where's, and most importantly, the why you should give a dams. I'm Abu. I'm Anna. And I'm Allie. Guys, are you refreshed from our week off? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Says Allie as she shakes her head. Mm. Yeah, neither am I. I'm just as tired as I was last week. I feel like we just do so much school yeah, Anna up. does her thesis and yeah, I crap. defended my thesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's got a week Anna. off for me. Yeah. She did it. It, w- it wasn't really a week off. We just didn't do the podcast because we were too busy. But we're back this week, and we got some exciting and not so exciting stuff to talk about. A lot of ha- a lot of stuff happened in the week that we missed. So at the beginning of this show, like every other show that we do, we're going to talk about the top three stories that you'd read in the news if you actually read the news. The stuff that people are sharing on your newsfeed and why you should care. Uh, we are not going to tolerate, we are not going to accept any more refugees from uh, this dangerous zone of Syria into the state of Texas or into these other states uh, until the. So, United in light States of the recent terrorist attacks in Paris, a number of governors have written letters to the federal government saying that their state will not accept any Syrian refugees um, in fear that they cause a security concern to the U.S. But this is after Obama stated that the U.S. will accept an increased number of refugees, uh, at least 10,000 in the next year. Uh, letters are the extent of what they can do, right? Right? Mm, uh, yes. So the governors don't actually have any power in how many refugees come into the country. That's the federal government's power. But in light of these letters, which were about 30, I believe, uh, couple less than that um primarily republicans one democrat i believe was in the mix go figure yeah in light of all of these letters written to the government the house actually passed a bill um voted on a bill that would make it much more difficult for the refugees to come into the country isn't it already incredibly difficult for a refugee to get into the states and to get acclimated and get their paperwork figured out and doesn't it, I heard on average it takes like two years to get everything figured out for yes. a refugee. In light of the Paris attacks, I think people are scared. And so the way that people deal with the things that they're scared of is by pushing them away <laughs> um, and keeping them out, I guess. Um, and what's extra interesting in this case is that um, those who committed the Paris attacks, it looks like all of them were actually French citizens. At least seven out of the eight primary uh, conductors of the attacks were French citizens. One had a Syrian passport, but they think it was fake. So definitely not refugees running away from a war-torn country. Right, exactly. So this new bill that they passed in the House, um, in order to take any refugee in from Syria or Iraq uh, to assure that they're not a threat, they would need approval from the Secretary of Homeland Security, the head of the FBI, and the Director of National Intelligence. They would have to sign off each on individual every, person. Yes, each individual person. Would All need ten thousand. Yes. What each person would need it signed off by each of these people, affirming that they are not a threat to the United States. And, and of that, course, you can easily affirm that. Maybe use that FBI's website that we talked about <laughs> last week to figure out figure out if these guys are terrorists. The or Facebook not. questionnaire. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So right. the the FBI director also would need to confirm that there was a background investigation that happened separate from the typical security screenings that already happen for refugees. I mean, that all sounds fine and good, kind of, right? Except for the fact that this would be impossible to actually carry out. Right, it would take forever. It would be impossible. There's no way we would actually be able to take in any more refugees, which, when considering um, all of the other countries who are taking in refugees, we are doing quite poorly. My initial response was there is no way that you are going to do this assignment. In light of what happened in Paris, is that the reason for this assignment? I feel that a different type of assignment 
or a report could have been chosen, or a discussion in class. So the education system failed a group of ninth graders last week when some parents complained about an assignment that they were given. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious where I fall opinion-wise on this story, but I'll fill you guys I in, and I want to hear your guys' <laughs> opinion. Failed. Right. <laughs> but I'll fill you guys in, and I want to hear your guys' opinions as well. So the assignment these guys were given, I actually have the exact, there's a screenshot of the exact paper that these children were handed out. And at the top of the paper, it says the purpose of this assignment is to help students understand the goals of terrorist groups and the methods they use to gain support. So what was the assignment? They had to create a propaganda poster for one of the terrorist groups that they have discussed in class. This got to the parents. The parents called into the school, just a handful of parents. They called in and complained, and the assignment got nixed. So there's no more assignment. These kids don't have to do this anymore. The school apologized officially. The teacher who assigned the assignment also apologized. Everyone seems to be happy. The parents are okay with the apology. I guess the silver lining here is that no one's getting fired. No one's getting fined. No one's really up in arms about it. There's just no more assignment anymore. And the teacher herself has apologized to the parents. So I guess in the end, no one really got in trouble, and it's okay. But there's just no more assignment. Now, the interesting thing I do want to point out is... There was an alternate given on the assignment that if any student in the class felt uncomfortable with the assignment, they could do a different version of it that didn't involve terrorist groups, didn't involve ISIS specifically. So they had that option, but the teacher says not a single student came to her feeling uncomfortable about the assignment. It was the parents that called in and complained. So what do you guys think? Assignment, good idea or bad idea for a couple of ninth graders? This is interesting because my terrorism and communication class that I'm taking currently, though this is as a college student, mm. I my final project is to make a plan to combat um, a particular terrorist organization. In my case, the terrorist organization is ISIS. That was one that I was assigned. Um, but to make a strategic anti-propaganda plan, more or less. So to create counter-messages, um, to combat whatever they're putting out. So in order to do this, I have to know what they're putting out. Um, So from a college student perspective, I think it's enlightening and important. And as someone who has or is seeking degrees in communication studies and political science, it is incredibly important. Um, For ninth graders, I don't know. I think that they should be learning more about terrorist organizations, um, not equating everything to a bunch of crazy people or anything like that. You know, there's there's a lot of complexities to terrorist organizations like ISIS, um, and I think it's important for them to learn more about them. I don't know if an open-ended assignment that says create a, a propaganda poster for them is helpful for them. I don't know how much, though, there was... Uh, surrounding it as right. far as like education on the and yeah that's what exactly how I feel actually I was going to say it was a stupid assignment with a good I don't know topic it's a good topic to kind of like be introducing and teaching about and stuff but not the best planned assignment like oh draw flag like that's weird also but it's also not I remember assignments kind of like that where you draw stuff but it's not the best method of I just feel like this was a perfect opportunity to teach these kids about a very scary, real thing in their lives. Like, th- imagine this was 1950s and we talked about communism, you know? Like, instead of a big red scare where these kids are just taught, hide under your seats if a nuke goes off, because the Russians learn about, like, what the Cold War, like, learn the intricacies, and you become more knowledgeable about it. I do think it's important to learn the intricacies. Like, I think that the assignment had good intention behind it. I just don't know if draw a propaganda poster for ISIS is actually helping them understand it any more than they would from learning about it in class or reading an article on it. I think it they would because then when you, when you have to put yourself in ISIS's shoes and draw something, you're like, but okay, that doesn't make any I'm a sense. pretend ISIS person and I need to, you know, recruit pretend people to join me. It makes you critically think about how they think about it too which, I mean, you can read all you want. You can read all the articles you want about ISIS in a book. You're still never going to understand ISIS until you put their, yourself in their shoes and try to do what they do. But that's, that's not how ISIS creates their propaganda. They don't sit down and draw on a poster with crayons to get people to join but them. But in a like, sense, they do. That's what their PR, no, that's, that's what their whole what PR do. thing they is have, about. 
They have very intricate newsletters, social media. They have strategies for right, all of these Right, and they sit down things. and think they about them. They send those. money to people. Yeah, they sit down and think about them, but it's not as simple as draw a poster. That's I think not that's what this assignment is, though. It's not just draw a poster. It's think about a propaganda poster. You know, they're ninth graders. Why they're not, not going to write have some huge PR marketing campaign. <laughs> it's just a small write a propaganda poster to open yourself up to the idea of how these people write this huge marketing campaign so when you see it, you can see right through it. But why not write a propaganda poster for anything then they did they also learned about world war ii yeah they were learning about nazis in world war ii and the assignment was create a propaganda poster for any terrorist organization they could have done it about the nazis it didn't have to be isis the parents were just up in arms that isis was an option to do a propaganda poster about they could have written about the nazis if they wanted to it was a broad assignment it was just focused on propaganda poster for a terrorist organization though yeah. Terrorists specifically? Yeah, it says create a prop. I'm reading right off the page. Well, I'm just wondering because state-run terror organizations, quote-unquote, are not often considered terrorist organizations. Yeah, I mean, if you want to argue semantics. But, like, the point is it wasn't like a... <laughs> like, I'm just saying the point is that it wasn't right. like a... Write about ISIS, pretend to be ISIS, I, ha, ha, ha. Like, right, which is what the internet is taking from it, obviously. That's exactly what the, how the media is covering it. That's how the parents covered it. Like, this is a thing about ISIS. You're going to corrupt our kids. You're teaching our kids to join ISIS and how they can and do that's, it. That's ridiculous. That's no. what, When you politicize education like that, nobody right. learns anything because you're just teaching them, like, the right way to think. That is not what education is about. Education is about expanding your mind so you can understand how the world works, which is much more complicated than just the right way to think. Assignment. I still think it was not the most well thought out assignment. I will stand by that forever, probably. I, I think mean, it had, she's I, probably just kind of, or she. Also, I don't know if it was a she. You don't know if it, it was, was a she. she. Are you sure? It was a she. They didn't release the name. They Yeah, her name's, nobody released the name in the media. But you do know it's a media. she? It's definitely a she. You're not being and sexist. she was also a young teacher. Like, she was either was like, new. Yeah, she was a very new, new teacher, teacher, like right. either in her first year or like still finishing up student teaching. So I'm thinking it was a, one of those things like this could be a good idea let's see how it goes and then it ended up being a yeah i just don't like the idea that you can't talk about something touchy like that in education because people will be up in arms about it oh, when okay. you should be public education people about that. sure i'm not saying they shouldn't have been talking about it i fully agree that they should be talking about it Big time. Yeah. about this this particular assignment i don't know but i think that the f- i love the fact that they are teaching this to kids but I any assignment with the word isis on it would have been some parent would have been up in arms Probably. it doesn't matter what the assignment was it matters what it was about and that's what the parents were mad about so essentially this school is not allowed to talk about isis or assign their kids anything about isis because some parents somewhere will get mad so these kids will grow up ignorant about isis except what their teachers taught them to read which you know? will just make them more fearful police have c- completed their search of the campus despite that they still remain here tonight as the college is on lockdown until tomorrow morning when uh, normal operations will resume at 8. Anyway, I want to talk about a story that happened this week that got national attention, but I don't think a lot of people know the whole story. Uh, it's a story out of Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. You guys have been there. I'm yeah, from yes. basically right there. Cute yep. little Chestertown. Super cute. Adorbs. Emphasis on the little. Yeah, it's a very small yeah. town and it's a very small private college with beautiful, nice brick building, you know, you know the type. Anyway, so I saw this story immediately on Facebook. Uh, I have friends that go to the college and I have friends that were alumni, stuff like that. Um, it's this, They canceled classes on campus because they got a call from a parent that their son who had been home for the weekend, he's from Pennsylvania, G- Jacob Marburger. He uh, went home for the weekend and then when he left on Sunday, there was a rifle missing and he wasn't answering his calls, stuff like that. So the family of Jacob called the school just to, you know, warn them. And so the university took very big precautions and just canceled classes and stuff. But on Saturday, they did find him. He was found dead in a park in Pennsylvania. He was very sad about all the incident stuff going on with, like, his life and everything. So... Um, he committed suicide, and so it's just interesting to me that they canceled classes so easily. They were just like, right, um, like missing gun used to be used to be like suicide, or you know, like I, it's just so so interesting that the first instinct for his his parents was, oh no, school shooting, and I think the school did a good job. Can't like I think in that instance, especially recently with an insane influx of school shootings and that sort of tendency. I think they did the right thing with 
at least canceling school until they found a body. I know there was a, like an email threat for a shooting mm-hmm. at Ohio State where my sister goes. And she texted me that email the day uh, it was sent out. She was all panicked and scared. And she was like, I don't want to leave my dorm. And I was like, okay, yeah, you know what? That's a smart thing to do. Don't go to class. Just kind of stay with your friends, stay in a group, be careful, and stay indoors as much, like in your dorm as much as you can. I think the precautions were fine on the school's end, but really props to the parents for putting themselves out there and kind of ratting out their son. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. It's just as interesting also how the Facebook conversation changed because I got to see updates up to the minute because people were freaking out on Facebook, that all my friends. And so um, it changed from, like, big worry, like, hell no, I'm not going to class, like they need to find this guy and then they're like oh thoughts and prayers let's hope we find him um like they just wanted they, then we started caring about him once we figured out he wasn't going to shoot anyone yeah and i mean you said he was like a he was kind of like a troubled kid right like he, he, he was, was technically he troubled was... yeah he was bullied for some things um there's like a specific incident where they had a trash can full of water on his door and then he opened his door and it fell into his dorm room stuff like that like but he was obviously a smart kid he was in this fraternity he was on the student government like board um and it just kind of sad that it all just kind of came down i think that in that situation it was probably right of his parents to call the university um i think that it's sad that that's the kind of place where we live in where we think that that's the right thing to do to call because it might happen but I think also after stories about shootings come out one of the first things that the media does is try to find a backstory was this person Mm -hmm. bullied was this person you know what was this person upset about why would they do this how did nobody see the warning signs I think is a big thing that we talk about um what kind of warning signs are there? How could we prevent this in the future? And fortunately, fortunately is such an awful word to use. I mean, I'm glad that he didn't go to his school and try to harm anyone. I, I think it's super unfortunate that he felt the need mm-hmm. to harm himself and kill himself. Obviously, that's very upsetting. Um, but I think that when you're showing those kinds of signs and you don't really know what it is, the best thing to do is just err on the side of caution because these kinds of things happen. And that could have been a warning sign that, you know, that he was going to do something to somebody else, especially if, you know, the stories are true that he was bullied by particular people or felt ostracized from a particular community, like his fraternity or something like that. It definitely could have ended up that way. On Friday, November 13th, a coordinated terrorist attack was carried out in Paris, leaving 130 dead and many more injured, and ISIS has claimed responsibility for this attack. To discuss this attack and others claimed by the terrorist group, including a pair of suicide bombings in Beirut and the Russian plane crash earlier this month, we invited Stephanie Dane-Smith, professor at Kent State University and former CIA executive, onto the show. Now, we recorded the interview earlier today, and I have to say, it was incredibly insightful. Here it is. Any introduction that we would give you would just not do you justice, Stephanie. So if you could just tell us what you do, what you've done in the past, your history, basically give us a rundown of your resume. Okay, thank you. I'm delighted to be here, first of all. Uh, Right now at Kent State, I'm an assistant professor both in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication and in the School of Communication Studies. But prior to that, I spent about 30 years in the federal government. Um, Almost 27 of those years in the Central Intelligence Agency where counterterrorism has been a uh, a key issue, a substantive issue, an organizing theme, um, sort of the the purpose of our work to some extent, the bane of our existence to some extent. So I I have some experience from the Central Intelligence Agency. I also was at the Department of State as a a loaned exec to their Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs Bureau, where I was a co-founder of the Counterterrorism Communication Center at State Department. And I have some experience in the United States Navy as well. So it's kind of defense, um, diplomacy, but primarily intelligence. Wow, that is one daunting. <laughs> that is one daunting resume. That's awesome. Well, we at least know you're qualified, because um, we're gonna have you on today talking about ISIS, yeah. the attacks in Paris, and just kind of terrorism in general. To to just kind of fill us in, 
on terrorism, the whys and the who's and the what's going to happen next and just all those scary questions. And okay. I know Anna has you for class, right? Yes. Do you want to fill us in on what class yeah. Stephanie teaches? I'm in Stephanie Dean Smith's um, Communication and Terrorism course um, through Communication Studies. So a lot of what we talk about is um, what kind of messaging terrorist organizations might be trying to send with their acts or with their propaganda and what we might do to counter that. Um, so perfectly leading into the first question I really want to ask uh, specifically about these Paris attacks, um, what kind of message might ISIS have been trying to send by choosing Paris or maybe even by choosing the specific area of Paris that they chose? That's such a good question and it, it, it has as its premise rightly so, is that every act of terrorism is at heart an act of communication. As tragic as it may be, as wrong as it may be to think about this, the victims themselves are secondary to the purpose. It's not a purposeful victimization. It is a messaging, uh, a whole messaging strategy. Uh, we can conjecture. There's been a lot of public conjecture, but I think one one important element here is this notion of them um, being able to operate and operate effectively far from their base. So if we assume that their base is, um, is Iraq and Syria, as you know, Anna, from having me in class, I reject the notion of them being ISIL in terms of the Levant. Uh, but uh, we, we see them be able to prosecute uh, very complicated, uh, logistically complicated acts of terror in Paris. Um, and if we just look at the attacks themselves, I would say that one of the core messages are that we are not JV, with the president's sort of, um, you know, regrettable characterization, mm -hmm. and that we, more importantly, that we can operate outside of our base. That would be, I think, there's a lot of messaging going on there, and there's certainly some Charlie Hebdo messaging going on there, but I think this notion of we can strike at will and we can strike far from our home is really powerful stuff. And yeah, I, I read an article just earlier today um, titled terrorism with no borders. Right. And I think that's what you're getting at. And that's what the article was talking about, too. The former U.S. ambassador to Pakistan wrote that article on Politico. And I was reading it today, and he's essentially just talking about the same thing you just said, yeah. that it's messaging, and it's basically we have this message that we have to get across, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't We're going to get to you. We're going to get to you. And that's clearly uh, one of the the claims they want to make. We can refute that. We might refute it. You hear Secretary Kerry and others refute it as far as the United States goes, and there is an ocean between us. But clearly, if you're asking about their messaging strategy, that's absolutely correct. And Abu, it's really important that you say this this uh, without borders, because this is such a huge thought for us and such a huge point, this notion of most of the really wicked problems of the world, the, the problems that require many, many solution sets, there's no ability to stop, you've got to keep trying to solve the problem as hard as it may be. Um, most of the wicked problems of the world, including, you know, terrorism, refugee movements, the desperate search for water, are um, without border. In other words, that, that the problems don't respect national boundaries. They may not even know national boundaries. And if we look at, at uh, just take one tangent for a moment, the notion of Ebola as a, uh, here we, we see it again, we see a couple cases cropping up again. It not only didn't stay in a boundary, it hopscotched around the world. So Nigeria, doesn't have the problem, but United States has the problem, or it, it, it hopscotches. And we see that with these problems. And terrorism is always going to be a problem that doesn't respect national borders. And in, in the EU, that's a huge problem because the borders are so porous. And so it's, it's really wealth. It's a very good question. I think also after the attacks in Beirut and the attacks on the Russian plane, yes. um, which there's a lot of questions, I guess, surrounding those still. Um, but as far as it not 
it being borderless, um, I think it raises a lot of questions about what might happen next as for like actions in Syria that these governments might take, because now it's not just France, you know, it's right. the entire EU, it's um, Russia, it's the US trying to get behind their allies. Um, what do you see to be the next steps that might, you know, take place in foreign policy because of these? Boy. Anna Hoffman, you're asking me for a, a really big projection and prognostication yes. here. Um, I really don't know, because I will tell you what we have to sort through, is this notion of how far is the United States willing to go with its new allies that include Russia mm -hmm. and this silent partner, Iran, you know, that the silent partner, but we should not discount them. Uh, certainly we're comfortable in, in league with France and with, the Great, Brit with Great Britain, but it, there is really this kind of um, discomfort yet now, and you see it expressed uh, verbally and almost physically with the president. How far are we willing to go with these new partners? And what are our aims it, right in the base area where ISIS truly does operate and hold land? Um, is, do we share an aim of um, getting rid of Assad? Not clear. Certainly we know that that, that may not be Russia's aim. Um, Russia, up until very recently, was not bombing ISIS. You know, so this notion of what comes next in terms of response, which is where I think your question was pitched, mm -hmm. um, it begins with this first step as who really are our partners? To what degree are we partners? And do we have the same aims in this campaign? And I would be as... Um, likely or unlikely as the man on the street to be able to tell you that because I think that's the existential tension now going on in the White House and in the foreign policy community. You see some disconnects within the administration. Let's not even look at the, um, the opponents of the administration in the United States. You have uh, John Brennan, the director of CIA, coming out after Paris saying, I, I can easily envision, this is not an exact quote, but I, I can see other operational plots in the pipeline, which is coded language, which means, you know, not just, you know, in the brainstorming stage. And um, you have an administration that's sort of saying, look, the, the, you know, we have a right to react and feel badly and share sorrow and, and be worried, but we have no fear here. And so that messaging isn't even together, which leads me to believe the strategy may not be as cohesive as it needs to be. I obviously don't have real-time insight, but when you're dealing with partners you've never dealt with before in sharing sensitive information or intelligence information or classified information, there's a lot of vetting to be done, and just how far we will be in partnership with Putin is anyone's guess at this point. I do think we will need plenty of partners for plenty of years. This so is a multi-year battle. Do you, do you see those partners happening? Do you see a coalition forming against ISIS, or is it all just kind of talk right now? I think there's a, going to be a coalition forming, um, and I think it will... I think it will continue to form, because this is happening um, at a most inconvenient time, because coalitions and it's it's easy to think that things can happen overnight because Paris, Paris, France starts bombing very quickly, right? Um, but this kind of force will require m months of planning. And this kind of partnership will require months of planning. And we're going into a change of administration, and we don't know whether which who will be elected. So, but I think regardless of that, we will see a coalition there, and we will see a long-term battle. Uh, I'm going to, if possible, avoid boots on the ground because it's sort of this ridiculous um, binary we've set up. Uh, Boots on the ground, not boots on the ground. You know, this, this, uh, it, it doesn't matter because we will have people, our people, our citizens in harm's way. They already are. Those numbers are likely to increase. We have to iron out what this partnership means, but this partnership and other people added to it will continue, in my estimation, for multiple years. Actually, I wanted to, I actually wanted to backpedal a little bit. You said earlier, I mean, I don't have the class with you, with Anna, but you said you don't like the idea of calling them ISIL. Right. 
do you want to explain that a little bit? Um, I think that there that I can't speak about what ISIS would prefer. I leave that to Donald Trump. But <laughs> um, I, I think to be known as the Islamic State, to be to be have that moniker that represents this sort of caliphate-like power, which quite clearly they want to caliphate. But even the Islamic State messages that we are the Islamic State. So I would absolutely categorically never call them that. I just have a personal uh, angst about calling them ISIL because I'm unwilling to um, surrender the Levant to them. So let's keep minimizing them to Iraq and Syria. This is foreign policy according to Stephanie Dane Smith, but I would continue <laughs> to call them ISIS. Um, and, you know, I just think that we, we give them um, more prestige and power in two ways. We give them more prestige and power by calling them ISIL right? Although the administration calls them that. But we also give them more prestige and power by debating what to call them. You know, I mean, we're, it doesn't matter to us what to call you. Right. What you do know? we call the boogeyman? Right, exactly. So, I mean, in, in my mind, this whole thing, but again, it goes down to the communication method message because uh, no question, they want to be called the caliphate. So IS works for them, Daesh works for them. Um, ISIL is better than ISIS, so I'm at war with their terminology, and they're at war with ours. But but the fact that we, this morning, I was at the gym. Yes, Anna Hoffman, I was at the gym. <laughs> and um, I, a Youngstown, Ohio, the local news, not mm -hmm. national pickup, was giving some tutorial on the news about ISIS, ISIL, IS, I, I, uh, IS and Daesh. And I was like... Wow, and I even posted this on social media that we've really lost the PR battle when Youngstown, Ohio is doing a tutorial on the various <laughs> names. We, you know, we are giving them a whole lot of media time, right. a whole lot. Were they doing that just to comment on the messages, the graffiti that was on the rock this morning? I, I I'm you not want, sure uh, yeah. that that story because this was like 5:30 a.m. and I'm not sure oh, what time yeah. the Youngstown State story broke. Um, because I've been in class, so I'm not quite sure when it broke. Mm. I think it was just this people do not know what to call. And we are very used to knowing the wars we fight are quite conventional and they're quite symmetric. So we are not used to people who don't have a uniform, who, who's, um, who don't have this kind of nation state behind them. And we know their names. Um, and we love to give names to our adversaries, but we've got this slippery uh, adversary who we just don't know what to call them. So I'm not sure it was in reaction. Yeah, I'd, say I'd have to know the timing that that news mm -hmm. broke, that, that nonsense news. It's yes. just kind of ironic then, I guess. It is kind of ironic, right? But, but, and, and, but let's take The Rock. Right. So we have this act of mischief, you know. Um, and, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's such a... It's such a compelling, mediatized story. We will assume that these are people of millennial age, though they might not be. Mm -hmm. I do not assume it's ISIS. Um, if it's if you're in Youngstown, we might as well surrender, right? Um, <laughs> but it, it's interesting how we are now using ISIS as sort of this vehicle to express lots of things. It may be a simple prank. It may be mischief. It may be some other kind of grievance. But the brand is quite um, mm -hmm. elastic, right? We're using it in lots of ways. It is clearly a global brand. And it's very elastic. We can fit a lot of problem sets into it. Yeah. So I know we already asked you what's going to happen next, if there's going to be a coalition. And you mentioned we're very much used to a traditional style of war yeah. where both sides are in uniform. Right. You know who you're up against. It's usually right. nation versus nation. Is it possible to, even if a coalition forms, is it possible to completely eradicate ISIS? Or yes. is that an idea that we're just going to be battling against for the next I think decade? It, I think it's possible to eradicate ISIS. Um, what I think is Im improbable, I never say impossible because lots of delightful and horrible horrible things happen all the time but um what i think is less far 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 less likely to happen is the eradication of the ideology and that you really have to strike at the core of the idea the core of the idea is powerful as as anna knows i'm always asking in class is it contagious why is it what's the legitimacy what's going on here um, because we can blow ISIS up, 
And the remnants will go to another country, take safe harbor, take years to regroup. We're seeing some evidence of Al-Qaeda doing that. Um, but the ideology is very contagious. And until we uh, understand the root of it, we can't hope to counter it. And the real war is an information war, is a communication war. And I, I just don't hear it spoken of that way. And we, you know, we kind of think of it's a propaganda war, maybe, but it really is a war of, of, um, of this notion of um, how it's, it's deeper than propaganda, um, much deeper than propaganda, how people believe the world should work, how people believe government should run, what people believe is righteous and what people believe is not righteous. All of those things are wrapped into this idea and it will be far harder to eradicate that idea. We clearly have to try. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful way of putting it. We can blow them up all we want, but it, it's a war of words. It's not a war of bombs and guns and the amount of lives lost. Right. So I think that's a much longer and much more difficult battle to win because we can wipe them out but I think that ideology is going to be here to stay for a while. And one thing about the ideology that's also very compelling and contagious, Abu, is this notion of we, are, we have been for almost 15 years, actually earlier, longer than that, in this asymmetric warfare, right? Where, and the former director of, uh, of, intelligence, director of Central Intelligence, um, Jim Woolsey, after the Soviet Union split, uh, broke up, said the wars of the future are going to be these wars with lots of snakes where we don't have this big behemoth monster of communism. Instead, we are in a world with snakes. And one thing about snakes is they regenerate, right? We cut off the head, it regenerates, you know? And, and so that's an analogy here that works for me. Um, and I think we need to think about um, this, this notion of uh, symmetric and asymmetric warfare because part of what makes this idea so powerful is that, that the United States, not just the United States, but the United States has tremendous force. Our, we have no peer in terms of our military capability. The, I think our nearest near peer um, Navy is 11 times weaker than ours, and that's China. Well, all the force projection, all of these, the huge militarization of this is, is groaning to keep pace with these nimble, asymmetric, um, ragtag, or we would have you believe this ragtag army, it's far from that, but who is actually holding territory and is right now holding Brussels captive for three days, not to mention how long Paris was captive, and they still haven't found who they believe is their mastermind of this operation, has held two European capitals captive, and all through a very lopsided power. Their, their power, they have Kalashnikovs and they have, you know, grenades, but we have all, so this, even the notion of how asymmetric it is, is a very compelling part of their ideology. So this stuff has to be considered very, very, very carefully. Right, the, the ancient David versus Goliath, you know. Absolutely. We're the small guys and we got to take down the big bad guy. And, and that is a, a perfect example of a narrative, of a storyline, um, of a mythology that works for who it works for. It, just because it may not work for me or you or all, those of us in the room doesn't mean it doesn't work very well with those it will find or those it intends to find because so there are two streams there. That's a perfect transition to my next question. If we could take a minute to just kind of jump into the heads of these snakes, what's the rationale behind terrorism? What's the rationale? What makes ISIS attractive to somebody? And once they're in ISIS, what's their reasoning? Why do they do what so, they do? So this could be more than one question, right? So the rationale between with ISIS and with the people who, who start and run terrorist organizations are usually to address a grievance. They, the grievance may be fueled by a desire for power. The, the, the grievance may be fueled by maniacal rage. It may be fueled by many, many things. And maniacal rage is different from actually being a maniac. Um, so I'm not suggesting these people are crazy. Um, 
but I am suggesting that they usually have a grievance and um, a desire to make a huge change. Not incremental, but huge, right? So if you look at Al-Qaeda, which you have to look at if you're going to look at ISIS, because one doesn't exist without the other, um, you look at people who have a vision of how the world should be, have anger about United States or Western occupation in some of their holiest lands, have real grievance of the United States' support of Israel. Um, and they take those grievances, and they see that in a very disciplined, very disciplined framework based on the Quran, a deep understanding of it, and an understanding of what jihad is, an understanding of a defensive jihad, which is you are in our homeland, you are backing those who do us harm, so uh, you are enemies, and, and you're creating apostates to our religion. So we're, we're defensive. We go now to ISIS, which whether or not we believe it or not, the media treatment of ISIS is uh, born out of al-Qaeda, right, uh, through an opening we left in a, we created and left in Iraq, and then splits. Whether we believe it or not, we debate it in class today. But regardless, ISIS is um, 3.0 of al-Qaeda, which is we could do everything now differently. We are not hiding in, tra in caves. We are open. We will hold and govern and manage the land. We will have a very different form of funding than, than al-Qaeda did. Um, and we, will, we have our grievances, but we may be far less pure about those grievances. Um, and we are far less disciplined about jihad, you know, that jihad um, is now of, um, an offensive nature, which is we're not just um, defending, we are now building a caliphate. So we will, we will not only defend our flanks, the lands that you're occupying, but we seek to go where you are and to build this caliphate. Very different model. So that's, I think, part of what's in their head, and that, that's a vast simplification. The other part of the question, what attracts, um, many things attract, right? Um, what attracts is usually not poverty related. We can look at that. It is often treated as a, as a joblessness and poverty and impoverished. It is more likely to be disenfranchisement, which is what we see as the European model, right? Um, and, and not only in Paris, but in Belgium and in the UK um, and probably in Germany. Um, disenfranchisement, this notion of um, lack of identity. Identity is a big theme for me, but also fragmented identity, that I am not just who my passport says I am. I am more than that. I am more, I'm a citizen of more than just what my passport says. Um, so I think this kind of notion of search for identity, search for purpose, and search for a place where I am enfranchised, not disenfranchised, is a powerful lore. It is seldom um, a crazy person. Um, it is seldom um, it is, it is um, seldom a poor person. It is, uh, although the, the circumstances can be, you know, economically mm -hmm. disadvantaged, poverty doesn't drive that train. Um, and it, it's, so what we see is the crazy model is more likely uh, the white man who goes into a church in the South and shoots up people. Um, that's more the crazy model that we try to make this. It, these, are, these are kids, they're not crazy, and they're sacrificing. I, I say to my PR students all the time, and they, I teach a lot of public relations classes, and they sort of reject this, but I say, you know, the whole framework of persuasive communication is no feel do. Get you to know something, get you to feel something, and then to do something. Get people to try to get to a voting booth in America is a huge, gargantuan, persuasive operation. Mm -hmm. But to Western youth and youth in the Middle East and lots of places, leaving your home, leaving your friends, giving up what you know hasn't prove that daunting a task for those who are recruited to ISIS. I'm not suggesting the numbers are huge, but they're impressive. And um, especially when you see people from Chicago suburbs, kids from Chicago suburbs go, they're not maniacal kids. They're kids who are in search, maybe reconnecting with a religious past or uh, the religion their parents don't practice anymore. Or maybe it's just finding a place where they feel um, 
They have a deeper sense of purpose. I, it's also uncomfortable when I say to people that there's a deep romantic appeal for both men and women, not just women, but there is that, you know, this notion of a caliphate, of a golden age, a notion of heroism, a notion of martyrdom, a notion of which causes would you die for, um, and what are you do, willing to do to support the building of a, one Muslim government, um, are, are really, they have a romantic allure to it. And actually, all, you know, all radical movements have some romantic allure to it. So it's, a, it's multifaceted. And maybe I, I, I would have been better off just saying that. It's multifaceted. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I, I absolutely agree. There, there's this story I tell Anna all the time. A really long time ago when I was visiting Pakistan when I was a kid, because I was born in Pakistan. Yeah. My American passport says born in Pakistan. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't have an identity crisis, don't worry. But I, you do have multiple identities, But right? I do have multiple absolutely. identities. I absolutely do. Um, and I, I did struggle with that as a kid. I didn't right. know, you know, like, is Pakistan where I would call home? Is America right. where I'd call home? And I didn't really kind of forge that identity until I, I grew older and kind of figured out who I was. But a really long time ago when I was a kid, when we were visiting Pakistan for the summer, and I, was, I remember talking to my baby cousin. He was real young at the time, probably five or six. And I remember talking to him and... I asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up because I was just interested in what kids in Pakistan want to do. Do they also want to be astronauts? But um, I guess that was just me. I wanted right. to be an astronaut. But he, <laughs> I asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up, and he said, I want to be a Mujahideen. And I was just like, say again? And, but it's, it's like this romantic. Right. In, in Pakistan, like he grew up learning that a Mujahideen has the same sort of respect that here in America we have for a Marine or anyone in the service. It's very much this sacrifice that you do for your country it's right. a very honorable thing to do there's this romanticism around it that i'm a marine i'm a mujahideen That's it's right. the same sort of idea in pakistan right. and right. that is always like i have never forgotten that moment and this this was like 10 years ago he probably right. said that to me so that, it's such a powerful example right because in class we talk about this all the time it's an axiom and many people have claimed credit for it but one man's terror terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and so this notion, um, we impose our values on it, and rightly so. It's terror that you're creating. But not everybody um, who aspires to be a Mujahideen or who aspires to build a caliphate um, has terror as its motive, has terror in mind. When we think of this, it's very unsettling for people to think about. And actually, when I say this, it's just why I'm not invited to that many holiday parties, frankly. <laughs> um, but this notion of um, a caliphate, right? Even Muslims that by Ted Cruz's definition would be moderate or mainstream, I just reject the terminology, but even, um, even those of the Islamic faith who would consider themselves um, not to be in part of any sort of violent jihadi movement. The caliphate has meaning, deeply spiritual meaning to them. And we cannot, so when we hear um, Dr. Ben Carson, not my physician, <laughs> but Dr. Ben Carson say, you know, we, we need to kill and destroy the caliphate. It's an, another example of this sort of knee-jerk, uh, either I don't know what I'm talking about or I'll say just about anything to be heard, um, reaction, which is y you're trying to kill a deeply symbolic religious value. And w why, right? That the notion of the caliphate is not necessarily a notion of terror, right? And we get very nervous when we hear one world Islamic-based government. But we all have these views. Christians believe in a millennium in which Christ comes back to earth and reigns for 1,000 years. And that the Christian and the Jew Jewish view of Christ, very different views, but in both views, he is in a, a government the government is, is run by uh, a savior who has our principles. So we should not be, it, the, the idea that we celebrate at Christmas time, if you're Christian, is this notion of the savior of the world, 
right? That ta- terminology. We sing, we teach our children Christmas carols that he will come again to reign. He is resurrected. He will come again to reign. He'll serve on the uh, earth for a thousand years before destroying it. And he will be, and even if you look at the, I can't think of the the beautiful uh, operatic um, king of king, lord of lords will, will reign and govern and, you know, um, and Isaiah the prophet says that. So uses the word governor, you know, we should understand that if if we were if someone were to say we need to destroy this idea of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ oh my goodness what would we be saying to christianity and even the jews who simply do not believe that the jesus of the new testament is the christ still have the belief of a of of a reign of a government that is just right this is what they were promised anciently yep. The, uh, to my knowledge, uh, and I, I'm not a super religious person, but to my knowledge and from what, what my parents taught me growing up, it's the same exact idea in Islam is that Jesus will return. There's going to be a big battle between good and evil, and then a perfect state will exist. A perfect world. state. Exactly. Well said. And and so the notion that we're going to destroy this is not only... A, a silly notion, but it's a dangerously reckless notion. And we know that ISIS and probably Al-Qaeda and ISIS pay the closest attention of our rhetoric, and they're able to turn it on us all the time. ISIS has been very good at using Ferguson, very good at using Ferguson as a radicalization tool. And so it's they're, they're very sophisticated. Speaking of what our politicians might be saying about this, particularly Ben Carson, but also all of the presidential candidates, yes. um, in the news lately there's been... Um, stories of governors trying to say that they're going to turn away uh, Syrian refugees, that they don't want them coming into the country. It looks like that might be actually getting some traction in the federal government as well. Um, What kind of effects will that have um, in the long term, do you think, other than just for the refugees um, who are, you know, trying to seek safe haven here? Um, What does it have for uh, ISIS's strategy, our strategy against them? Um, I think for ISIS, it couldn't be a better propaganda tool. I mean, it could, it just couldn't work. Thank, you know, they could take the day off on Twitter because they don't need it. I mean, they can just really repost half of the conversations we're having. Um, do I believe that ISIS could use refugees as... Um, an operational uh, mechanism, an operational platform, certainly. You can. And, and part of when people um, say, well, uh, General James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, says it's possible, yes, he does, because he's in the business of doing threats, and he has to analyze a threat of all kinds, right? Um, but the notion of it's some of the rhetoric has been uh, exactly what ISIS would want it to be, or what I believe ISIS would want it to be, that we we will administer a test to Christians, or maybe we'll take women and children once again, because women couldn't be radicalized on their own. They need that man. And um, (laughs) this, this, you know, that Christians from Syria, we should take, you know, those are the ones we should take. It it is, I think it's wonderful propaganda fuel. So we should worry about that more than we worry uh, in my mind, uh, about the refugee. We, by the way, are not looking at tourist passports. You know, we're not looking at any of that. And everybody we know so far uh, involved in the attacks in Paris, at least, had a European ta- passport. They could be tourists here very easily. They were not refugees. Um, but uh, based on what we know right now. Um, but I would also argue that the other piece we better look at is our own moral fiber because we are a country of refugees. Uh, you've probably seen you know, or heard the meme or the postings on social media about we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving, which is a refugee holiday. And, mm-hmm. and you know, but we need to look at our moral fiber and how I always think when you have a strategy, it's really important to say, here's what I will do to accomplish that strategy, and here's what I refuse to sacrifice to accomplish that strategy. I don't think we've had that national conversation, and it doesn't seem like we'll be well poised to have it, although an election year should be that time in which we say, what are we unwilling to give up to, to, what are we unwilling to do in our own moral character, our own national character? Those, I think, are two 
two likely outcomes of this debate. How, how successful the governors will be, I don't know. They don't have to be successful. All they have to do is show that they had some flaming hot rhetoric, right? And that's a lot of what that's about. And I think Obama put it like right after the Paris attacks and when this idea of a religious test and we should only be allowing being allow, um, allow Christians to enter the country, I think he put it perfectly, was our compassion does not have a religious test, right. I think was the quote. And we don't uh, have a national religion, but apparently we do, or at least John Kasich believes that we do. <laughs> or he's been quoted as saying, let me put all the kind of caveats around that. He's now backing away from that. But that we need an agency for you know to promote um, Christian and Judaic beliefs, you know, I'm... I, I don't understand whether they have read the Constitution that they quote <laughs> so liberally. I really don't. I, I you know, I, I wonder about that all the time. Stephanie, I just want to say the entire time we've been recording, I love your little digs at everyone. I like, know. You're, you're just great, like, aren't like, I? you're very polite and very calm and very, you know, straightforward about I it. Have my you people. are really digging into some people. I love, it. I love it. I have my people that I go after. I mean, because <laughs> rhetoric, because... The American people are pretty desensitized to this rhetoric, and the people who will be whipped up in America will be whipped up, or they all have their dog whistles. You know, I heard this one say taxes, and I know what that means. Or, but um, for uh, terrorists who are also master propagandists, I don't know that they're masterminds. I reject that, but I do think they're very masterful at propaganda. What we've done is give them enormous fodder, enormous. I want to go back to something that you said earlier. We didn't really uh, go deep into it, but we were going to. I just want to know the media's role in all of this. I mean, the media's role um, is really to always tell the story of what's happening mm -hmm. without um, necessarily mediatizing it. And when I talk about mediatizing, I mean creating a storyline. The story of what's happening is complex and multifaceted and scarcely able to be fathomed each day. I pretend no expertise to what, what can be fathomed and what can be mined from what's going on, right? But um, that's their role, to, to present reality as they see it and to ask really hard questions about every assumption here. I, I am often troubled, um, and we talked in class, and I, I think about this a lot, the, the framing that we give, which is um, always the media, the basic, you know, victim, villain, vindicator, you know, and, and so are we, how do we feel about being the vindicators when our partner is Russia? Are we still the vindicators now? What, because that kind of goes against our national strategy. It wasn't too long ago in the last presidential campaign that when asked who's the no number one enemy of the United States, Mitt Romney said Russia. So, wow. Um, <laughs> you know, so we, we, we see this. So the, the lines are blurred so, the, blurred, so the role of the media is to take nothing for granted, to ask good questions, to actually get on the ground, and then to tell the story as complex as it is to the American people, and to try to reduce that complexity as much as possible without denying that there's complexity, right? So this kind of breathless notion of, um, you know, first of all, it's a troubling thing for me because I watch uh, MSNBC and NBC, but I also watch Fox, you know, so I've got both, you know, rail posts covered. Um, <laughs> MSNBC, I'll pick on them, and NBC. <laughs> it's the same foreign correspondent everywhere. Richard Engel is everywhere. That's a problem for me because while it suggests he has got real real depth, he and real expertise and that's I don't argue that. It's one person's point of view over and over and over again. That creates this story arc that we have to make the story little by little fit into this predictable arc. And I think that's a problem. Media terminology always the terrorist is a mastermind, right? Always. And the media was groaning this weekend at understanding this woman. Was she commit de deliberately detonating her suicide belt? Was she doing it for love? She was this normal teenager. She was seemed to be filled with hate. And they're struggling that this could be this, it's almost an anti-feminist uh, language, you know, that she could be radicalized on her own, she could be deeply radicalized, she could be deeply filled with hate, she could be deeply operative. I know lots of women operatives, by the way, and 
don't take on a man before you take on one of them is what I would say because they can be as deeply felt and as deeply strategic so there's this the the role of the media is to tell the story and the role of the media is to cover the terrorism that doesn't make western headlines Um, we have plenty of terrorism in China we have plenty of terrorism in provincial India these and plenty of terrorism in sub-saharan Africa but because these people don't look like what we've cast terrorists to look like and their cause feels remote and provincial to us we do not cover them until there's some sensational uprising and we um, we cover it that way. If there's some sensationalism to it, well, it'll get coverage. But a whole huge portion of the world is far more violent than the terrorists we cover on a regular basis. Boko Haram, we we cover them mm-hmm. as almost a social media phenomena. You know that they they don't exist when we stop saying bring back our girls you know so the media really has to be longed well some journalists do this very very well um, but it's usually long-form journalism and we have less and less an appetite for that so the story on the ground is quickly evolving much more quickly than the nightly news would allow um so the acts that these terrorists are committing downright are just horrific and i think that Um, As we keep hearing about them in the news and talking about them, they do, to some degree, do what they're aiming to, which is instill fear, or at least horror, um, when people are watching these. And I know, kind of to wrap things up here, um, in one of the first classes of yours that I was in, um, you asked us, in the past four years or so, have you become more optimistic or pessimistic about the world around you? Um, And so I was wondering, in light of, I don't know, everything, I guess, up to this point, are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the world? I don't think I'm a wild-eyed optimist, but I'm always optimistic. And I'll tell you some causes for optimism that I have. This notion, and Abu said it well, but he wouldn't be the only one to say this, that he has multiple identities, right? But he said, I don't have an identity crisis about that. And increasingly... um, your age cohort, and absolutely your children and grandchildren, will have multinational identities. I am not saying that they will have 15 national, that they will be citizens of many countries, but they will identify much more than we do, uh, or than my age cohort, which is still the leadership cohort. You know, Obama is younger than me, but the people who are running foreign policy for the most part are still a little bit older than me, right? That will change. And with that change, even with President Obama, you see this person who does have multiple identities. When you experience the world, even if it's on a, you know, a two-week study abroad, or if it's a semester, if it's a mission trip, you begin to understand it's complex and that um, people everywhere don't want the same things, but they all have legitimate wants and they have legitimate needs and legitimate grievances. So I am more optimistic in the the, um, idea that we will have people who are more global, um, who more easily think globally and have global experiences. They will be less and less reluctant to use um, larger and larger military capabilities that we can less and less afford because they will have experience with the very land they are decimating. That changes everything. Worldview and identity change things. Uh, I also think we will be re- we will be a more united world and in some ways perhaps a more fragmented world. So it's the It could go either way because some of the great battles we fight will be over things like water. And um, when we share this notion of um, needing to share water and and needing to trade water, and when we really get to that age, which will happen in your lifetimes, um, we will have no choice but to have unconventional partners. So I feel some optimism there. I do feel a strain of pessimism in the notion that terrorism will not be resolved um, in time for an election. It will not be resolved. Uh, your children will still be coping with terrorism. It will look different. If you wanted to follow the arc of the storyline, if I were to impose 
as my own storyline arc, which is again imposed artificially, is this notion of high value target, you know, World Trade Center, Pentagon, um, high, high, high value, right? Wall Street, you think of these things where Wall Street's not been a target, but could, right? To this notion of um, soft target, targets that are impossible to make uh, universities, shopping centers, um, bars, concert halls, churches, impossible to keep, to harden and to keep hardened. Um, to this notion of very personal terrorism, which we will discuss in the finale of our class. You still have to attend, however, Anna Hoffman. Um, <laughs> where, which is, um, I, I can terrorize you in your, your cyber accounts. I can fool with your pacemaker. I can do all of these things that terrorism becomes more personal. So we had better be prepared for a world in which we really think about the ideology because we will never be able to keep pace with the tactics. And they will always be asymmetric. That's okay because asymmetric tactics rendered very well are horrifying enough. So pessimistic a little, optimistic greatly. Are there any final thoughts you want to leave us with, Stephanie? It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, you go out and, and uh, you know, go out and go where you're needed. Follow wherever the world takes you and do not be afraid of the world. Uh, it's important not to be. The pleasure has all been ours. Well, thank you. Amazing. Thank you. You guys are being great. So thank you so much, Thanks. Stephanie. Make me sound good, Anna Hoffman. You're great rides on it. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Was that off? Was that off? She's amazing, right? Yeah. One of the most well-spoken and intelligent women I've ever met. That was incredible. I'm jealous that you have her in class. Yeah, I know. Me too. I wish I was taking that class. Like, how did you get into there? I know. How do I do it? It's perfect. Every every couple of days. And it's also just great because I think that, you know, these attacks and these big scary things that we hear about in the news, sometimes it's hard to have actual thoughtful Mm -hmm. conversations about it that are constructive and help you understand better what's really going on and so being able to go into her class and have a conversation like this like we just did um just really helps you know pull all the thoughts out of the air and well that's awesome hopefully uh maybe she'll want to come back on some other time well that about wraps it up for this episode we want to thank you for tuning in and being a part of the show it means a ton to us Special thanks to our sound engineer, Andres, and our writers, Chris and Hannah. We're a young show, and we'd love to get some feedback to learn and grow. So if you'd like to contact us, hit us up at ipspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always just leave us a review on iTunes to let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs> <laughs>